This is Energy Voice Out Loud, leading the global energy conversation. I'm Alistair Thomas and welcome to our podcast. This week I'm joined by Africa and LNG editor Ed Reed and digital journalist Hamish Penman. And Ed, you're going to kick us off this week. Um, serious tensions around the Karish field development in the Middle East. Uh, yeah, indeed, indeed. So, uh, I mean, initially this story was just going to be about, you know, a new FPSO arriving, which, you know, and obviously the sort of the prospects for uh, East Mediterranean gas, you know. So obviously that's going to play a, an important regional role and, and, and possibly, who knows, may one day sort of feed into uh, European demand. But then things took a bit of a turn for the uh, more unsettled uh, when Lebanon and uh, the terrorist group Hezbollah took umbrage at uh, the arrival of this uh, the FPSO, uh, which had come all the way from Singapore um, and said that they had serious concerns about its presence in uh, in well so obviously the the israeli company energian which is uh, developing karish uh, says that it's uh, israeli waters and obviously they got a license for that from the israeli government the lebanese government uh, takes a different perspective should we say on this uh, and says that actually uh, the uh, the the field and and obviously therefore the equipment lies in lebanese waters so uh, yes, it was it was uh, a bit bit of a worry. Um, so it started with the uh, Hezbollah saying, you know, they were ready to take action, uh, not specifying what that might be. Uh, the Lebanese government uh, said that it was a provocation on the part of Israel, um, and that they would, you know, sort of uh, take serious uh, steps to to tackle the problem. Diplomatic, it should be should be should be stressed. Uh, and then uh, on Wednesday, the Israeli Defense Minister and Foreign Minister both sent out a number of tweets uh, defending the uh, the Karish plans um, and 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 essentially sort of pledging to secure the FPSO. Um, obviously, a, a a threat that shouldn't be taken lightly. There's there have been some reports in the uh, in the Israeli media that uh, the Israeli uh, armed forces will be providing security, and even that uh, the uh, Israeli uh, anti-missile technology, I think it's I believe it's called Iron Dome, may be extended to cover the this uh, this this FPSO. So it, 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 things have really taken a turn for the uh, slightly hair-raising. I thought it was going to be a story about, you know, uh, a new FPSO. It's interesting because it's the first, I believe, up the that went up the Suez Canal. It's got a f- collapsible flare stack. That seems significant, you know, in this day and age of, of sort of, you know, shorter cycle times. Turns out it's a story about Hezbollah and anti-missile technology. So sometimes these things just take you napping. Indeed, indeed. Wow. Um, yeah. Uh- uh, so that has taken a turn, as you say. Uh, but I mean, I guess, yeah, I, I did actually have a look at some of the uh, Israeli media um, as well as your piece said. So, yeah, I mean, what? so this dispute around the, the territorial waters, uh, it seems to have been going on for a, a good long time. I d- What's Energy In's position here? Did they just want to bring the FPSO to Israel and hope for the best? I mean, they must have been aware this would... This would flare things up. I would. Have, I would have thought. Uh, well, I mean, yes, indeed. I mean, I think obviously, uh, energy and I, you know, is 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 essentially banking on that license that it has from the from the Israeli government, and obviously, um, 
I think, you know, typically this is one of those things that, that obviously does deter investment is that kind of question about sort of disputed maritime borders. Um, and Aegean, you know, clearly must have felt confident in its position um, that it was uh, that it was had a legitimate claim and a legitimate right to uh, develop the uh, Karish field. So um, I think, you know, that that is, you know, obviously a, a position that is, is, of course, extremely defensible. Mm. Um uh, obviously, you know, I think there are. Uh, it's 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 always hard to say how these kind of disputes will play out, isn't it? Mm. I mean, I think so. As you say, Lebanon has has for some time disputed quite where this this border lies, uh, and in fact, when uh, when Energy and began its operations, I think it was last year. Um, the drilling rig arriving. I think Halliburton is providing some services. There were questions in the uh, in the in the, in the Lebanese legislature about about the uh, the um, how this was going ahead, why it was going ahead, the legality. Um, so I think you know clearly it, it it is as you say it's a question that's kind of been going backwards and forwards for some time. I think there are, there are, as I understand there are sort of minimalist and maximalist claims from from Lebanon and depends on you know what position they're going to take and i think there's also a question about um where they are fighting that claim i, I believe israel believes that this dispute should go through uh UNCLOS, which is the united nations body that uh, essentially oversees the the law of the sea um obviously there's a lot of toing and froing there the us is also involved because obviously there's a, a potential sort of wider security ramifications um so i think there is certainly uh, you know it's 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 an ongoing sort of a high level debate that that you know obviously is kind of trickling down to have kind of local impact i think it, it should also be said that well, the uh, defense and foreign minister, the Israeli defense and foreign minister yesterday um, were, you know, did come out and say that they were prepared to defend, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the the development of the Karish field. They did say that the, um, the FPSO wouldn't uh, exploit the resources from essentially from over the that maritime border. So... I mean, obviously, the question there about how, uh, you know, how much you can impose those sorts of lines on reservoirs. Um, and I think, you know, obviously, that question about quite where that line is will end up being drawn and quite where it falls on the reservoir is obviously going to be a question that I imagine will be contested. And will I, you know, I assume that as a result, a lot of lawyers are going to be uh, fighting this one backwards and forwards. But <laughs> obviously, I suppose, you know, in the near term, the, 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 the really the focus is on trying to avoid uh, actual uh, escalation from Hezbollah or the uh, Lebanese forces uh, against the FPSO. So, yeah, it's um, obviously pretty hairy. Wow, yeah. Uh, maybe to, to ask a little bit about um Karish itself, and you mentioned stuff about the the FPSO, but it, this seems like, um, I mean, for those who aren't aware, a pretty huge, uh, mainly gas field, and and it sounds a bit like what, what's been thrown into the mix here is a suggestion that there could be not just gas supplied to Israel, but Lebanon also. I don't, I don't know how that works with diplomatic um, tensions around there, but. Um, Interesting to see. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I mean, Lebanon obviously is is struggling on a number of fronts. Uh, I think you know the the government uh, perpetually seems to be on its last legs. Uh, the currency is struggling. Obviously, there you know sort of inflation. There are challenges around power generation. 
Um, and, and so there is a big question there about, you know, how you try and run an economy. Um, and obviously, as, as I believe, you know, they are, you know, largely reliant on, on sort of supplies of, uh, of, of, of fuel oil to keep those power plants running. Um, which obviously has a knock-on effect. I mean, it's you know obviously it's bad for the environment. It's you know it's 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 a high-priced way of, of 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 generating power. So I mean, I think you know clearly the fact that there are these you know uh, gas resources offshore, um, it 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 feels like you know like gas should be able to find a home in 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 Lebanon, and clearly there is demand for it. There is though obviously that that sort of political dispute, isn't there? If if Lebanon is disputing uh, Israel's claim to this gas, then can they then at the same time say we would also like some of that the, the, that gas to flow to us across the border? So I think that's that's obviously going to going to prove another challenge. I mean, obviously in the meantime, uh, Israel has clearly seen this as an opportunity to you know expand its uh, its 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 domestic hydrocarbon production. So. I believe uh, gas flows into Egypt from Israel hit record uh, levels in the first quarter of this year. Um, it, you know that you know there, there are new discussions around sort of uh, LNG, around exports, around pipelines. So I think you know Israel and and, and Israel, I believe, is also talking again about uh, about a new license round, um, which you know something would have seemed impossible a year ago. So. There is clearly a, an incredible gas resource offshore Israel, offshore Egypt, offshore Cyprus, possibly offshore Lebanon. Um, but it's just a question of, of, of sort of finding a way to develop that resource, isn't it? And I think that's that as is is often the way in this particular part of the world is 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 going to quite likely be the, the the biggest challenge. But yeah, so in the meantime, uh, Karish. Uh, is is kind of on track to to reach uh, eight bcm uh, per year, um, and then there is also going to be some 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 liquids production as well. So for energy, and assuming you know that uh, they can they can ride this out, which you know probably there's a good chance um, it, it it should do very nicely. Mm. So the FPSO I believe is is due to start up I think energy and said the the third quarter but uh, you know it kind of feels like sort of September is kind of what they're suggesting is, is that this year yeah yeah so it's yeah. it's kind of all coming together so it's going to be significant for energy and it's going to be significant for, for for Israel it could be significant for Lebanon if they can you know put aside these differences and, and secure those gas flows but looking at uh, Lebanon's disputed politics that may be the biggest ask. Okay, uh, thanks, Ed. I think we'll uh, hear more about that in the, the months ahead, um, but we'll park that for now. Um, and next up, I'll be talking about a new clean energy event being launched in Aberdeen. Across four virtual events, Energy Voice is assessing the wind sector's development to date and investigating what needs to happen to maximise its potential. Session three of the series, The Global Perspective, will focus on the pace of development and opportunities in high growth markets. Convening on Wednesday, June 15th, our panelists will discuss how learnings can be shared across the industry to mutually benefit as countries work towards their ambitious net zero goals. Topics for discussion will include where are the global hotspots for offshore wind deployment and what can we learn from them? How big an opportunity is floating offshore wind and how can the offshore wind industry help to evolve the hydrogen economy? Register free at trackingwind.com to join our virtual audience and hear from our expert panel. 
Okay, uh, so let me just tee up the context here about why we should be uh, covering this story. Um, so in 2014, there was uproar, really, when All Energy, which is now billed as the largest low-carbon event in the UK, moved from its home in Aberdeen to Glasgow. And I was there I was there a few weeks ago, actually. Did neither of you... Have you guys been to All Energy before? I know Andy has, but... No. Is it a good one? Okay, it's all right, Ed. I'm fine, fine. <laughs> Buzzing about. Good free coffee. Good free coffee. Okay. Yeah, lovely. That's that's the main draw. Um, but and well, it is it is quite impressive now. I mean, I see companies there who wouldn't necessarily put up stalls and spending at offshore Europe, say, which is you know Aberdeen's major event, who do spend money at All Energy. That's quite noticeable when you walk around the stands there. Um, but yeah, it, it, it has grown in stature, uh, and in 2014, the decision was taken to move all energy to Glasgow from, as I say, its home in Aberdeen, caused uproar. Business leaders said it was a severe blow to Aberdeen's credentials as a hub for all types of energy, um, not just, obviously, oil and gas, and also a blow to the economy. So they cited, uh, the cited reasons at the time um was hotel costs, room availability in Aberdeen. Some thought that was a red herring. There were parliamentary questions being put to the then First Minister Alex Salmond about the move, some speculating that public money had been used to move it to Glasgow, but that was denied by the Scottish Government. In any case, uh, Aberdeen had lost the show, business leaders were up in arms, and Aberdeen Renewable Energy Group, AREG, uh, which helped form uh, All Energy, uh, said it was dis- deeply disappointing as Aberdeen has an unrivaled energy supply chain in Europe, and it is the natural home for it. So, fast forward to now, um, AREG is launching the Energy Futures Conference and Exhibition, which is going to take place on November 15th at the PJ Live here in Aberdeen. And the idea is to showcase uh, North of Scotland's strengths in renewables and decarbonisation of energy systems. And you'd certainly be forgiven for thinking this agenda sounds very similar to all energy. Uh, Decarbonisation, as I say, of of energy systems, communities, household initiatives, heating and transport systems, all sort of things that are very much on the agenda at that other conference. And I think that north of Scotland piece is quite important too. Uh, Not just Aberdeen, but, you know, look at Orkney and Shetland, the exciting work being done up there. Uh, Cromarty Firth, you know, Sturega's green hydrogen plans there. Inverness, Kishorn, there's lots happening in Aberdeen. And, you know, I would hope and and think it will remain a very much a hub, but there's there's more to it than just Aberdeen. Certainly having that north of Scotland focus is, I think, the right one. So, so yeah, the proof will be in the pudding in terms of how successful this is. Uh, You know, for me, there is... You know, there's floating wind events and the like in Aberdeen. There's not really now a dedicated conference, I think. Please do write in. Uh, I think, uh, I don't think there's anything specifically dedicated to this in the city anymore. So, you know, if, if everyone's serious about the energy transition, as as they certainly would suggest to be, then perhaps they'll put their, well, their money where their mouths are and, and give this event a leg up. Why can't conference organisers just, you know, get on? I, I guess. Mm. What, so when when is the uh, when is the the other conference? Are they are they are they how close in the diary are they? Are they are they, they going to try and sort of compete in a in a sort of a, a time slot? Because that you know could prove quite divisive in terms of uh, who might be attending. Oh uh, well, I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, all energy is in May in Glasgow, and this one is going to be. Well, it was in May la- this year. And the one at all, and uh, the the new one from Areg is going to be in uh, November. So uh, yeah, probably not direct competition. Oh, is perfect. there room for two? Maybe there is. Who knows? Um, but six months or so apart. So that's, uh, you yeah. would think that worked quite nicely. We're kind of bookending either side of the six months. So yeah, 
It makes our job easier in terms of scheduling as well. Well, that's something. Yeah, please. Just <laughs> anything to make the schedule easier. Won't they think of the energy voice journalists? <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's going to be, I mean, I think, you know, as as, as, as sad as that sounds, I mean, I think there is there is a there is a, an, an African, well, there are two African energy conferences that happen in Cape Town um, that, that it feels like they're at sort of daggers drawn and they're both in October. Um, and it's very much a question of you know sort of uh, one or the other, and it's uh, so I'm, I'm I'm glad that you guys are uh, you know and your your conference organisers are taking a, a, a higher line. I mean, I think you know that's uh, that's 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 very good. It is, it is. I mean, I guess what we should probably say is you know all energy. I think I think in 2019 we don't have the latest numbers for 2022, but in 2019 it was something like 8,000 visitors, which is which is grand. Um, you know, offshore Europe, which is obviously biennial. Um, so, you know, it's got that going for it, but it has something in the region of 36,000 visitors in 2019. So that that's still very much the premier event in Aberdeen. Um, this idea that the accommodation um, wasn't strong enough in 2014 when it left for Glasgow, um, you know, the, the, the situation in Aberdeen now, it's, you know, it's accommodation is much more, uh, you know, I worked at the Speedbird Inn at the time, uh, which is a hotel in Dice for offshore workers, uh, really. And the number of hotels, you know, popping up there since then is huge. And, you know, accommodation is not really an issue anymore. Infrastructure with the Bi- Aberdeen Bypass is much improved with improvements to the Haddigan Roundabout too. It's kind of a different picture altogether. So, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, the reaction was pretty... Um, Pretty grim at the time. Quite a lot of uproar. Um, you know, a lot of people saying this is just illogical. And Glasgow is not the centre of the universe for energy. I think somebody at All Energy, this, uh, I think it might have been the first minister, suggested that Glasgow is the centre of the universe um, at All Energy. This <laughs> I think she said that as a joke, but yeah. Um, but yeah, so. I don't know. As I say, hopefully this can kind of emulate the success that uh, that All Energy has had. Um, Hopefully this one doesn't end up finding it at home in the central belt this time, but you know we'll we'll have to see really. Be a real curveball if the Aberdeen Renewable Energy Group started moved their conference to to Edinburgh. I <laughs> know, oh, I know. Real, that, that, I don't know how well that one would work. <laughs> a real misrepresentation. <laughs> yeah, it does be too much. So yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, yeah, I think I think we've uh, more or less uh, hit the nail on the head there. So we'll leave that one there for now, uh, and we'll finish up with a question around what to do with Scotland's onshore wind turbines when they reach the end of their production lives. Geothermal has been identified as a key technology in the provision of sustainable energy. It's not dependent on weather conditions and geothermal power plants can supply baseload electricity. And geothermal can also harness the skills and technology developed in the oil and gas sector to help drive the transition and shift to net zero. It offers a huge untapped energy source that has potential to drive up to 20% of the UK's electricity and all of the country's heating demand, making it an area that should not be ignored. For the first session of this new series to be held on the 29th of June, Energy Voices teamed up with Expro, an expert in geothermal, to showcase the potential of the technology to reshape the energy mix, enhance security of supply, and advance the just transition from oil and gas to sustainable energy. Register free at trackinggeothermal.com to join our virtual audience and hear from an expert panel as they discuss what the technology is, why it's important, and what's next for the sector. Okay, so uh, Hamish, big question, um, but someone has found a well, a, a creative solution to that. Yeah, very much so. Um, turbine blade recycling is a bit of a, a big problem for the industry, actually. It's certainly something that gives a lot of people uh, a lot of sleepless nights. So, I mean, as it stands, um, pretty much every part of a wind turbine is recyclable um, or 
can kind of be disposed of in a nice environmental way. So the nacelle, the internal components, the steel structures, they've all got uses after after life. Um, but the blades are the exception to that rule. Um, they're made out of fiberglass, reinforced polyester, uh, often with some carbon fiber thrown in there too as well, I think. So they're very hard to break down. They're pretty sturdy. So when it comes to getting rid of them, there's only really two options. Um, either just burn them to a crisp or uh, ship them off to landfill. Uh, so neither of which is particularly suitable if you're, if you're doing a nice big green drive. Um, it's not going not gonna to earn you many points on that. So, I mean, waste from blades alone is expected to reach around 2 million tonnes globally by 2050. A lot of the wind farms that we're seeing now dotted around will be will be reaching the end of their lives by that point and there's going to be a lot of, a lot of blades needing disposed of. Um, so there are already a heap of studies going on to try and try and crack that last bit of the puzzle. Um, Akroshall Wind have got one uh, alongside Strathclyde Uni. I think Strathclyde Uni might actually have a standalone study as well. Um, and government funding, have, they've thrown quite a lot of cash at this um, to try and get a handle on it early. Um, and this is kind of in support as well from, from trade body Wind Europe. <clears throat> they've called for a Europe-wide landfill ban on decommissioned wind turbine blades by 2025. And the EU, are, I believe they're poised to, if they haven't already announced a date for which to stop, they are looking into it quite heavily, I believe. Um, and there's a whole heap of opinion pieces on the EV site about this, so I'd recommend reading those if that's your uh, your vice. <laughs> um, but Fred Olson Renewables has formed a new partnership with uh, with Reblade from Glasgow, so maybe Glasgow is there. Who's the energy capital? <laughs> oh, no, come Ooh, on now. Slicing words. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, um, but yeah, they're the two of them are going to look at using blades from the the Windy Standard Wind Farm, which has to be one of my favourite wind farm names. Uh, windy really Standards, originality I, in it at its core. I'm not going to hijack this, but let's just. I, I think one thing that oil and gas does have going for it normally is they like a good cheeky, you know, uh, oil field name. Yeah, definitely, like, you know. But I always I always go back to Shell, who they either like the name after a bird or the name after a Bond villain. You know, I mean, come on. Fantastic. I don't know. The, the windy thing, it, it's, it, it does what it says on the tin. Maybe that's, I would like to see the well, the wind industry do that. I think that would add a real dynamic if they came up with all these these mad names named after, I don't know, ones on, ones off, on, outside Norfolk named after Alan Partridge characters or something. That would really, <laughs> that would really <laughs> brighten my day. Um, but yeah, so the windy standard wind farm near Dumfries and Galloway, that's coming to the end of the line. Uh, they are going to look to repower some of the turbines um, or install a, a few new ones there. Sorry, but uh, uh, around 30, maybe slightly over 30 are going to be ripped out. And that obviously means that there's going to be blades that need to be need to be disposed of. Um, so what kind of what makes this uh, this study stand out from the rest is that they're looking to reuse these blades to create things that can then be used in the local community. So there's pictures online, they're pretty impressive actually, of a, a bench that's been made out of turbine blades, a rather nice looking uh, dining table. That would, that I thought would I'd definitely have that in my flight, it was, looked, looked class. Um, also plans for bus shelters, bike racks, play parks. Um, and that play parks idea I think is something is that is something that's already been uh, developed, I think in the Netherlands they had a, a play park in perhaps Amsterdam, maybe Rotterdam, um, devised entirely of old wind turbine components. Um, so, I mean, innovative, innovative ways of reusing this this tough material that could create some pretty futuristic. They are quite futuristic looking, um, but yeah, I think it's a great idea. I'd love to see them in Aberdeen. I imagine they'd be a 
a lot better and a lot harder to pan in than the glass and blast, uh, plastic ones that are currently dotted around the streets. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm just glad that somebody's found, you know, a use for these other than Extinction Rebellion, who has taken this old turbine around Duthie Park in Aberdeen. I think it was during COP26. It was, They're getting yeah. everyone to sign it uh, for a just transition. Do you remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Could you could you get a gaming a gaming setup made out of a wind turbine? Perhaps the structure for a podcast booth. I mean, the, 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 the opportunities are are endless. Here, yeah, so. yeah, yeah. It's, it's interesting though. I mean, we have even just onshore. We must have like hundreds of onshore turbines in Scotland. I mean, I'd, and I guess this this question is going to become all the more uh, relevant offshore very soon as well. So, yeah, you need somebody who's coming up with the answers. Um, it's good to see that somebody is is doing so. How long does a wind turbine last for? Like. I mean, because presumably there'll, there'll come a point, is it like 20 or 30 years in the future, when suddenly we've got like a, a rush of uh, bus stops made out of uh, wind turbines. Is that is that what the future holds? I think it is about 20, 25 years. Um, so that means that kind of the first generation of, of onshore wind specifically that was that was pioneering is, is now starting to, to come to the end of its life. So it's kind of almost already a pressing problem but it's only going to become more so um in the coming years i mean it's it's also a a chance to make some money here as well for some companies if they get it right i remember reading an article years ago about when old phone boxes went out of use and there was a guy that made an absolute fortune buying them up and um watertighting them and selling them off to 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 rich folk for, for shower cubicles which I thought was a brilliant idea. That's a great idea. That's amazing. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, but also, and, and they're getting bigger, aren't they, when the, the, the blades, right? So th- does this mean that we're going to end up with gargantuan bus shelters? Uh, how big would my house need to be to fit in a dining table made out of one of the new uh, wind turbine blades? <laughs> Maybe that's the drive that everyone needs to in order to upsize their house. <laughs> it's the last, the last piece of the puzzle that we all need in order to have lovely, massive houses that we can enjoy is because they must be able to take a wind turbine table. Stick on a 30-metre extension. I'm quite interested in the... Uh, yeah, well, I guess you can cut it up, right? You can make any size out. So, you know, don't, don't you worry. They'll accommodate. The, the, this, <laughs> the, go onto the Energy Voice website. Have a look at the, um, the the story Hamish has put up and have a look at the photo ops that we have for this particular story. There's, like, a bunch of folk and they're just, like, got their arms out with, like, tea and milk um, with the turbine table. And it's like... What are you doing? <laughs> What's happening here? They've all, they've all, they've all got. But I mean, I don't know what the logistics. I'm assuming there's a road behind them. I'm assuming they didn't just carry these tables and turbine chairs. It, they don't look very comfortable. It does look like they just sort of set off into the wilderness yeah. with, uh, with, with, with a turbine bed. Mm. I, I mean, I, I could, uh, I could see that. I, I could see that in a play park, to be honest. Um, but um, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I I have questions about how comfortable the chair will be. Um, it certainly looks great, and I can see many local authorities saying, "Oh, wind turbines, a circular economy." Yes, please. Yes, please. Um, but uh, from a practical perspective, I have questions about how comfortable it is. Anyway, anyway, that's just my two cents. <laughs> Nobody asked for it, but there we are. Um, okay, uh, well, I think in that case, uh, we will round up this latest episode of Energy Voice Out Loud. So thank you to Ed and Hamish for joining me. I've been Alistair Thomas, and thank you for listening. Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector.
Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.